It's a delight for me to welcome the three panelists we have today. Uh, David Satori, a mycologist, activist, uh, organic gardener, teacher. Phoebe uh, Tickle, who's a ticker, who's a renegade scientist, social entrepreneur, um, and educator. And Stephen Reed, transdisciplinary thinker, cultural change maker, and a metamodern mystic. Um, so we wave that metamodern flag and see how that may come into the discussion today. So I think to start with, it would be great to just hear a bit from each of you about uh, some backgrounds and uh, current interests. Um, and if you would like to say what connective intelligence means to your inspires as an opener, that would be cool. But we'll certainly be going into that further. Would you like to start, David? So yeah, hello everyone. Um, yeah, like uh, Tom said, my name is David. And <clears throat> so I like to study mycology. And I'm currently studying a master's program at Kew Gardens, where I um, basically learn about plants, fungi, uh, their conservation, uh, biology, taxonomy, things like that. And my particular focus is on mycorrhizal fungi. So they're the type of fungi that form connections with living plants and basically regulate the health of ecosystems across the whole planet. And I also run a project called Myceliate. So um, I'm going to be telling you a bit more about what mycelium actually is, and just so that word makes sense for you. <clears throat> it's basically a project where I teach people how to grow mushrooms, um, how to form different, create different medicines and foods and uh, different kind of products that help boost our health through um, mycology and through what we forage from the wild. And it's my strong belief that if we start learning the actual creatures, the actual species that live in our ecosystems, we're going to form much closer connections with nature. Because, I mean, nature connection is a massive, massive topic that we've been talking about quite a lot of the psychedelic society. And yeah, many people leave, for example, their psychedelic experiences with a yearning for great nature connection and things like that, but they still might leave, still not, not too sure about the actual physical um, properties that different uh, trees and plants and fungi actually have. And that kind of represents a massive, massive um, uh, abyss, you could say, between us and the rest of the natural world. And that is it for me. So we're going to be diving a bit more into ecological intelligence through fungi and things like that. Cool. Exciting to be sitting next to you, David. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Phoebe. I feel really excited to, to be here. And this topic of connective intelligence, I really like that. It's very close to my heart. Um, so this is to introduce myself a little bit. Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good background, maybe anything you're passionate about or yeah. focused on at the moment. Perfect. Yeah, so I started my journey as a scientist. So I was studying plant sciences and microbiology um, back in 2013. Um, while I was studying science, I went into science because I was completely in love with how nature organizes and really curious as to understanding. Um, I felt as if as a scientist I was on this journey of kind of uncovering the codes of how life organizes and how um, the universe kind of creates patterns and systems and so that was the part that really excited me. And I went to study at Cambridge University where I was really excited because you know it's like very well known and famous for its great studies in science and whatnot. And I was really disappointed because the whole experience was basically about learning things off by heart, uh, tearing things apart. Like I, I took ecology as a class and instead of being about the kind of systemic, holistic 
view of life and like really getting a sense of that in any kind of experiential way the whole thing ended up being about like taxonomy separating things out learning lists of names you know it was just it was completely dry and quite depressing to be honest um and so like since then i, I continued on the science path a little bit but basically slowly became more and more disenchanted with this reductionist uh, approach to science which we've been taking for the last like m many hundred years since the scientific enlightenment um, but it's exciting because there's a new kind of strand of science that's coming about and um, I sometimes call that postmodern science but there's all sorts of different names for it and it's basically the science that shows us that we're there's no such thing as an individual we're actually we have these completely blurred boundaries like calling a human a human makes no sense because actually the human body has uh, not 10 times as many bacterial cells in it than it does have human cells. Um, you know, life is irre irreversibly, irrevocably, uh, deeply interdependent and connected. You know, we've put Darwin on a massive pedestal and this whole mantra of like it's survival of the fittest. He actually never said that. That was a phrase that uh, someone else came up with and has been kind of assigned to him. And actually the whole like natural selection thing is, is a combination of um, not just competition, but collaboration, cooperation, and mutual aid. And I realize this is going way off topic from my introduction. So <laughs> yeah, this is, this is really good. And we do have time for a bit of extended introduction. But it'd be okay. nice to hear how um, these thoughts have inspired you to do kind of the, the work that you do now. So, so what's the kind of shift or contrast from that yeah. hierarchical system of education? Yes, this is why it's great to have a panel facilitator. So <laughs> and back to the topic. <laughs> great. Yeah, so basically on that on that journey, um, yeah, I, got, I was excited about the patterns and as I left science, I got more excited about how can we apply this like postmodern science view of being interconnected and organizing in different ways to the human world because I could see what was happening with, you know, that it felt like the world was burning and I was sitting inside a lab and not really doing anything about it. So I, start, I got interested about how can humans actually organize in, this way, in the way that nature does, in a decentralized way, in a way that's like self-organizing, bottom-up um, and like network-based. And so for the last like three, four years, I've been studying, uh, practicing, exploring different ways of working, different ways of organizing. Um, and I work with organizations on building kind of non-hierarchical or decentralized um, governance or management. So basically that's all fancy language for like organizing humans in a different way that mimics nature a bit more. And we can talk more about yeah some of um, what I've discovered of how what kind of things teams need to have or groups of people need to learn to be able to organise in that uh, non hierarchical way. Great, thank you. And just lastly, do, do you see there being a, a particular movement or swell in this sort of new approach to organising yeah. your teams, certainly in the really. sciences? No, no. Yeah, of course, yes, <laughs> in the sciences. Yeah. Um, well, that's difficult for me to comment on because I have kind of removed myself quite, like I still read papers, but I'm, I wouldn't count myself as part of the scientific community. For sure, the kind of systems view has, has become incorporated into science, especially, I would say the really exciting um, topic, and I, I know I saw, I was glancing at your notes, so I don't want to take this, this point from you, maybe you can comment on it, but that ecology <laughs> will be, is like the most exciting topic of the 21st century because it is being 
it's being completely transformed um, by the systems thinking. And I would say like in physics, you know, because of all the really exciting stuff around quantum physics, and there's been a lot of massive paradigm shifts in physics, but it does feel like it's, it's biology's turn. Uh, turn. It's biology's time. Um, but in terms of like, for example, Extinction Rebellion, so I'm, you know, I'm part of the self-organizing systems uh, team in Extinction Rebellion, group group to anyone here who's, who's part of that movement. Um, it's so exciting to see Extinction Rebellion after something like Occupy, because the way that Extinction Rebellion is organizing the sort of things that, you know, the, the cultural patterns and codes that are being used to kind of organize that movement are, are super exciting. And I'd say, yeah, in workplaces as well, there's a growing awareness of, um, you know, we can do things differently to hierarchy, but often it is just a bit surface level. It's like, oh yeah, we can have a nice culture and hierarchy. Or like, you know, let's be non-hierarchical, but I'll own the company and you will just like be non-hierarchical. Oh, I'm, with I'm mandating like, that we do everything now. Yeah, <laughs> hierarchically way. just telling your employees that you're going to be non-hierarchical, sure. which is like... Well, it's going to be great to kind of get into some of these movements as well and, and see extrapolating from the biological world and that connectivity into these social movements. We were talking about Frederick Leloo and sort of teal organisation paradigm. Um, but Stephen, please, could you give us a bit of background um, about your work and current interests? Mm, yes. Uh, is this on? Yeah. Uh, I studied physics. I specialised in quantum field theory. Uh, which so the the leading models in, in physics are um, well, except in general relativity are, are quantum field theories, which are based on this idea that there are fields that permeate all of time and space, and all phenomena exist as some kind of vibrations, perturbations in these fields. So actually, modern physics does have a very uh, holistic view of things in in this sense. Um, it's, it's just curious how some of this, these ideas take a generation or four to kind of filter down into some of the rest of the sciences and then certainly out into uh, you know, common sense. Um, I then went on to do a master's in complexity sciences, where, uh, so complexity sciences, the study of complex systems, systems with many interacting parts such that we can't understand the behavior of the system from studying the parts in isolation. The interactions between the parts are fundamental to how the system behaves. Another way of saying that is very often at least they can be modeled as networks, things with, with nodes and then so-called you know, edges, lines between the nodes that, that, rep that represent connections of, of some description. And so can I interject yeah. just on that complexity? I think it might be helpful maybe to some of the audience and something that's come clearer to me recently is that the difference between complicated and complex yeah. in terms of systems. Just wonder if you could Yeah. So uh, an example of a complicated system uh, might be a, a car engine or most modern electronics. It's something with uh, with many parts that are indeed interconnected but they're interconnected in a deliberate and you know, precise and designed way such that we understand it. You know? um, whereas a, uh, a complex system is, uh, is similarly interconnected, but the, the ordered nature of those interconnections might be really rather different. In particular, it might enable <coughs> Uh, emergent behaviors, emergent properties, 
that we wouldn't necessarily predict from simply understanding the parts. But then when you put it all together, it's like, oh wow, if you put these cells together, you get a human body. So a human body is a great example of a, a, a complex system. Um, you might say that complex systems are, are also complicated, or at least often complicated, but there's, um, yeah, maybe I'll actually pass the PB if she wants to add anything on that. She's, she's the teacher on this topic. But, yeah. I think you're doing a good job. I want to hear about the psychedelic part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, complexity science. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of it's a mathematical topic. They used to, scientists have found that there's a certain set of mathematical tools which are appropriate to studying complex systems. Uh, although typically you, you don't get the same type of answer, you don't get like very precise answers. There's a lot of use of approximate mathematical modeling and graphical analysis, such that you you know you start getting a feeling of the system rather than the answer is 42. Kind of thing about it. Um, and uh, so I, yeah, she had funding to continue to do a PhD in that topic, but. Decided at the time that academia wasn't for me and got involved in the world of environmental activism. Uh, during that phase of my life, psychedelics discovered me. I discovered psychedelics. I'm not sure which way around it went. Yeah. And my, my, I had some very profound early psychedelic experiences that. Only latterly I've understood that perhaps one way in which they were so profound is that they were giving me this embodied sense of unity and interconnectedness that previously I only you know, studied, I only grasped at an intellectual level through my studies in physics and complexity. And, which was, and I mean, they were useful compliments in that sense. And I'm really grateful that I did have that academic background before I went into psychedelics. It felt like it gave me something to like. Oh, okay, this is what they're talking about. You know, <laughs> it's one thing to like talk about quantum field theory, talk about like networks and complexity science, and then there's taking you know a high dose of psilocybin mushrooms and like feeling you know body like merge into all the ears and feel like seeing the kind of intimate flows and connectedness with the environment and the food that you eat and the air that you're breathing and so on. And so I think they're yeah, actually yeah they they they. Good friends. Um, since then, or from that time, I became interested in psychedelic science. And of course, there's some brilliant psychedelic science coming out of places like Imperial College and Johns Hopkins, and now also King's in the UK, actually. There's a, there's a very well known study on uh, how psychedelics affect brain connectivity. That, um, and some of you might have seen the, the diagram in this study. It's like two, it's like two circles made of made of node, like made of nodes of a network side by side. Uh, and on the left hand side, there was all these circles representing like different brain regions. We've got just a few lines between them, indicating that in your normal waking state, your brain has quite restricted connectivity, and that's thanks to the action of the so-called default mode network in the brain, which is something like like the controller, and it's like telling your, uh, like your, your visual system like not to interact with your taste system, for example. It's like, you know, don't, don't go there. We want to keep some separation between these five senses, for example, otherwise it's going to get complicated. <laughs> and under the influence of psychedelics, your default mode network is 
turned down and switched off, depending on your dose, I guess. Um, and so the, the, the fat controller sort of disappears, and suddenly all the, the, your other brain regions can, you know, can suddenly go, hey, 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 and you can all start <laughs> talking to each other. And you get this massive increase in connectivity across brain regions, uh, brain regions which results in things like synesthesia. Has anyone experienced synesthesia on a psychedelic trip? Yeah, so this is when you're like tasting colours or seeing smells or, yeah, your senses become mixed up. Um, and, yeah, the, the psychedelic show that actually this is, you know, uh, totally possible. And uh, it's the case, it's not actually a, you don't need, you don't, sometimes you're not, you don't need to add anything, you just need to take something away. You just need to take away the part of your brain which is well, which which evolved for survival, right? It would be it would be confusing if you're constantly seeing, you know, existing in a psychedelic state and seeing patterns and patterns and colours like merge into one another and might be hard to run away from a predator that's chasing you. But um, you know, in, in safe conditions, it can be a fascinating thing to yeah. do. And, um, so. And, and I think it's it's quite um, yeah it's, it's very interesting to see that that is the in some sense the mm, the, the the natural state of things and and Huxley said it well that he thought he postulated that the brain acted as a reducing valve that out there is just this um, this well as Bohm said this undivided wholeness and flowing movement that is just impossible to to take in, especially well, at least if you want to survive, um, yes, and yeah. so the brain, in you know, for, for, for noble reasons, uh, decides to like filter that information, to shut lots of it out, and to like control the way in which it's received and interpreted, uh, such that we can get on with our lives. Uh, but it's the psychedelics enable us to experience that that wholeness and that those deeper levels of interconnectedness in a uh, really fun way. Remember Huxley saying that our sensory organs are actually for sensory reality, mm, not nice, for, yeah. for revealing it, <laughs> so they work in that way. And so um, we do live in this time that requires more systemic and connected thinking. And so it does feel like psychedelics have a role to play in this in terms of cultural change as well. Would you like to just um, maybe round up some of this with your thoughts on the psychedelic society and, and taking a fresh look at psychedelic culture and all that that's inclusive of in terms of medicinal benefit, yeah. trauma healing and so forth? So, um, it's been some interesting work being done lately on, um, you might call them meta-crises, of people trying to get to the root of like, what's, what's really the problem here? <laughs> um, like the philosopher John Babeke talks about the crisis of meaning, which yeah. I think is a really useful frame. I think we could also usefully talk about a crisis of connection or connectedness. Belonging, yeah. Belonging, yeah. Um, that, and see the, the mental health crisis, for example, as a symptom of that deeper, more fundamental crisis of connectedness. And that connectedness, um, as is, it's a guy actually, and others have used this frame this weekend, might be usefully thought of as connectedness to ourselves, to each other, to the natural world, I might actually add a fourth one, which is to to spirit or to the beyond. And psychedelics, I think, can play a useful role in, in reconnecting us at, at each of those levels, um, depend, depending on their context of use. You know, I think they can be incredibly helpful, taken in a uh, 
private even or certainly like quite calm ceremonial setting to help us deal with uh, you know, our personal traumas and helping us in some sense to like reconnect to, to ourselves. They can be used in group settings in, you know, as, as is done in rave culture and so on to induce a deep sense of, of interconnectedness between different human beings. They can be used in naturalistic settings for people to uh, feel a deeper sense of connection with uh, the non-human world. And, uh, and you know, <laughs> well, potentially in all of those settings and more, there's a possibility of feeling like you are connecting to the mystical, the divine, the, the ground of being. Um, that's more a case of the dose than the setting, I think. Well, I, I congratulate you on, on the psychedelic society, including the space that we're in today everyone that's put into that and, and it does feel refreshing it's kind of like a um yeah a new look at psychedelics and their value that's perhaps not so tarnished by the kind of first wave of, of interest in psychedelics in the 60s and 70s the revolution um so bringing it back into the um the kind of sexual theme of inquiry connected intelligence um we would try to kind of work through from realm of biology and connectivity there and sort of share with the audience a sense of how and why natural systems and ecological systems tend towards connecting and we've already skimmed over some of the topics that we can we can delve further into so psychedelics and society technology um david would you like to share a bit more about mycelium and, and yeah. biological connectivity connective sure. intelligence what that means to you in terms of your studies all right so yeah um before we actually dive into a discussion of um, kind of ecological intelligence and things like that, I think it's wise to actually define what we actually mean by intelligence. So the Merriam-Webster dictionary defines it as one, the ability to learn or understand or to deal with new or trying situations, or two, the ability to apply knowledge to manipulate one's environment. So the good thing about these definitions is that it doesn't actually require a human type of consciousness to exist, so that we can apply these definitions to even non things that aren't classified as organisms, but rather than rather systems of organisms as well. So uh, we don't need to presume that um, anything that has intelligence has to have the kind of intelligence that a social primate like us has, um, which is great because it kind of broadens our ability to understand the natural world as um, we experience it. Now, the key element in um, ecosystems when it comes to intelligence is the number of connections that are formed within the system itself. So we find that the most resilient ecosystems on the planet are the ones with the most connections in them, with the most biodiversity, and so on. And the actual drivers of this kind of connection is something that really kind of I have a massive interest in, which is symbiosis. Now, symbiosis spans many, many different types of connections with organisms, but we're going to be focusing specifically on one of them. Now, that particular type of symbiosis is through mycorrhizal fungi. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with mycorrhizal fungi, but they have been in the news quite a lot recently. They're essentially what form the wood wide web, if you've heard of that term before. So the underground networks that basically connect every tree or every plant in an ecosystem to everything else, potentially. And um, normally... This us maybe feel like a show of hands for people that are familiar with mycelium and the mycelium networks or something like that. Yeah. Okay. As, as we 
are so people are aware that when we talk about fungi or, or mushrooms, we're not necessarily talking about the little things that we see popping up in autumn, but rather the underground webs that exist within soils, within trees, within uh, dead, decaying plant matter. And oh, in one, for example, one tablespoon of healthy soil, you can have as so much as eight miles of mycelium penetrating through it. So we know that there's a lot of connectivity going on between these uh, plant roots. Now, mycorrhizal fungi are a subset of fungi. So there are lots of different um, fungi that actually decompose um, dead plant matter and so on as their ecological role. Whereas mycorrhizal fungi, they connect with living plant roots. So they're kind of the, the I, I always call them the prime um, organisms for basically affirming life. They're, they're life-affirming organisms because they make connections with other living beings just to survive rather than kind of decaying um, already dead ones, which is important, but um, fascinating in a completely different way. Can I ask, is that fairly unique of mycelium to, to be um, sort of symbiotic uh, across many different species of flora? Um, you could say that because it's specialized to do that. Um, you have more kind of unintentional symbioses as well whenever you have, say, um, interdependencies between species. But this, is, this seems like a very, very uh, finely evolved uh, mechanism where, these, where this mycelium wraps itself around roots and sets up exchanges between itself and the plants. So the plants provide it with photosynthesized carbohydrates, whilst the mycelium provides the plant with minerals and nitrogen and phosphorus that the plant needs that its roots can't necessarily get. So they both kind of depend on one another. And this kind of symbiosis is known as mutualistic symbiosis. Uh, that's the one where both parties benefit from the, pre pre from the present of the other one, as opposed to, say, a parasitic uh, symbiosis, which will also do exist in ecosystems. And um, one interesting fact is that over 90% of plants in the whole, on the whole planet actually form mycorrhizal associations. So it's actually more, you could say, evolutionarily adaptive to form these connections rather than to kind of um, hold back on them. And the plants that hold back on them tend to have reasons for doing so. So, for example, they might be growing in such nutrient-rich soils, they, they, they don't really need to form these connections. Um, but when plants do form these connections, we see that their growth rapidly increases, they're more nutritious, uh, they're more resistant to pathogens, they're more resilient to environmental stress, such as drought, high salinity, massive temperature fluctuations, and so on. And we also know that um, for example, in a, in a forest, in a closed canopy mature forest, as much as 97% of all light is actually filtered out before it reaches the forest floor. So if you think of all them little saplings that are trying to grow out from the ground, they're not getting, any, not, they're not getting much sunlight to actually photosynthesize and grow. The reason why they're actually growing is because the parent trees, so the ones that have the access to the sunlight from above, are actually transferring their nutrients through the mycelial network to feed their young and essentially give them a head start in life. So eventually when one tree topples over, when it gets um, too old or say it gets struck by lightning or whatever, these little ones now can have a, finally have a chance to actually shoot up and then rapidly grow and keep the forest alive essentially. So we know that within every ecosystem, these fungi exist. They're essentially regulating the health of ecosystems, kind of keeping checks and balances of the nutrients that flow in and out of the system, and that's why I'm really fascinated about this. But the whole idea of connection with mycorrhizal fungi actually extends beyond mycorrhizal fungi. So we can talk about 
another type with saprotrophic fungi. So those are the ones that actually decompose dead matter. Now, I have a really interesting type of uh, mushroom that I'd like to talk to you about, and that's the lion's mane mushroom. So it's actually endangered in the UK. Um, so if you see it in the wild, don't pick it, because it, it needs as much help as it can. It grows in mature beech trees, and the fact that we've lost so many beech trees um, in the UK means its habitat basically got slashed by like 90%, and uh, the fungi are suffering as a result of that. Now this fungus actually has been shown to regenerate nerve cells in people that have neurodegenerative diseases. So it encourages remyelination of their neurons, so it kind of heals their uh, nerve cells within the brain. And it also um, encourages more connections to be made within the brain itself. So it's a fungus that's saprotrophic, yet it encourages connections in our own mind. So that way, um, by participating with our ecosystems, by kind of restoring ecosystems, bringing these uh, mushrooms back into our um, diets and pharmacopias, we're actually increasing the connectivity in our own brains and expanding kind of our cognitive capacity, if, if you'd like to call it that. Um, yeah, amazing to see it play that kind of connected role of introducing to you know the tissue in our bodies. Yeah. Um, you were talking a bit earlier about so this the connected intelligence of, uh, of mycelium. Um, could you say a little bit more about how that works? If there isn't a kind of central management in the mycelial network to like how it's making decisions, what the kind of extent of, of that is, and please feel free others to kind of chip in. Yeah, so um, I'd say that these connections, they're not hierarchical, but they are kind of organized in a, almost in, in an egalitarian way, you could say, um, in that there isn't one kind of organism running the show, even though there might be keystone organisms within an ecosystem that have disproportionately large impacts on the other creatures around them. Now, I think fungi are keystone organisms in that they do um, they're basically the denizens of decay in the natural world. They're, they're responsible for well over 90% of de decay. They're responsible for the health of ecosystems and things like that. But say a mycelial web gets big enough to the point where if it started to, if it kept making decisions as one synchronized unit, it would be really in, a really inefficient way to manage its resources because it will be producing enzymes that it could it might only need in one region, but it's producing it everywhere in the system. And that's kind of a bit of a waste of its nutrients. So, so sort of Soviet central planning model. Pretty much. <laughs> What's yeah. your scale are we talking about? Is it famous one in Oregon? Oh, yeah. So uh, mycelial webs tend to be, say, a few square meters in diameter. Um, there is one in Oregon. It's not a, my, uh, it's not a mycorrhizal fungus. It's a saprotrophic one or, or a parasitic one. Uh, that's the honey mushroom, so Armillaria ostoye, in the mountains of Oregon. It's two and a half thousand acres uh, wide, and it could be as, as old as 8,000 years, so between 1,800 and 8,000 years. Um, it's basically spreading across the forest. It is killing the trees, but it has been postulated. <laughs> it has been um, postulated by Paul Stamets that they're actually meadow makers. So by killing off the trees, they're allowed. They're, allowing, they're opening the doors for ecological succession back into meadows and fields, which are very, very important ecosystems in and of themselves. Um, in fact, grasslands and meadows actually photosynthesize way more than forests themselves. They're a lot more biodiverse at times as well. So um, even though it's a, we see parasitic fungi as being kind of like threats to ecosystems, it can actually play a good role um, if we frame it that way. Um, but kind of jumping back to the, the original point, 
when a mycelial mat gets big enough, it actually assigns autonomy to different parts of the mycelial web. So instead of producing the same enzymes across the whole organism, one end might be producing one type of enzyme based on whatever food source they might have, and another end might be producing a completely different type of enzyme based on what food sources they're experiencing, and then kind of what enzymes are needed to break down those specific molecules. So it, even though it is one unified organism, it's not behaving in kind of like a top-down hierarchical structure. It is assigning autonomy to different parts of the system. So I think that, that's, a, that's a really great, uh, perhaps like analogy for some sort of social systems that are behaving in similar ways. I wanted to just think of using that as a segue maybe to talk about some of the other things that we touched on. Phoebe or Stephen, I don't know if you'd like to pick up from there. Good segue into decentralized models of organizing. Yeah. Like teal or XR or... Yeah, how much time do we have left on the panel? This we, is a... Uh, we, we have 40 minutes. Oh, great. Um, okay. So I was trying to keep it like 20 minute chunks as we move along the yeah. evolutionary paradigm. It's great to talk a bit more about social structures and things now. Okay. And there will be plenty of time for Q&A afterwards as so. well. Yeah, yeah, maybe in the q and I've got, um, I was feeling like there's so much around the world of bacteria as well, like really interesting around symbiosis and the reason I find bacteria so exciting is because the symbiosis is actually like with us and our guts and all of these papers coming out since 2016 around their influence on our behaviors like anxiety, depression, um, mood swings, appetite, that we kind of co-evolve our immune system and metabolic system with bacteria so yeah it's really cool hearing about the fungi and then uh, the, then like the equivalent of bacteria you can kind of actually start to experience that as like that's that's within you that that symbiosis is really um throughout your own body but yeah we can we can move on to social stuff i was well. just wondering to ask a question if there's any analogy between like the nervous system in mm-hmm. the kind of ecosystem of our bodies the higher biomes mm-hmm. uh, and sort of mycelium in the in the soils or larger yeah. ecosystems we see out there. So maybe good to introduce the word holobiont, which is, um, I think it was created by Scott F. Gil- Gilbert, Gilbert who, who's, um, he, had, he published a great paper a couple of years ago called We Were Never Individuals, kind of calling to the scientific community to start recognizing that you just can't, the idea of like an individual species just doesn't make sense anymore because of how closely uh, bound we are, and many organisms are, to um, species that are not the same as themselves. So, like for example, um, you know, there's a there's a type of salamander that can't uh, develop like fertility without the presence of algae um, within its system. Or, like for example, scientists have been um, like breeding mice using like a cesarean instead of a like a vaginal birth, and then mice are not um, coated like mice who are given birth to by cesarean aren't coated with that first layer of bacteria, which is like very, very important for the development of um, certain behaviors. And, and they found that like on average, there's, there's a whole bunch of studies showing that mice who are born through cesareans are way more likely to have um, anxiety and depression. And then if they're provided with those bacteria afterwards, they start, those symptoms start to um, lessen. So like we just have so little understanding of that of our symbioses that we're actually deeply um, enmeshed in, and then we do things as a society from this place of ignorance and lack of um, appreciation for our interdependences, and then we're surprised that you know there are all these problems and we don't know how to fix them. Um, 
So it's, it's just exciting that that knowledge is growing and that you know we're, we're kind of growing an awareness of that. Um, and yeah, yeah. Can I just add something here as well? So um, we, we're kind of talking about intelligence here as well, and Thank you the the reason why we experience intelligence and have a concept of intelligence is because we're conscious. And we now know that the gut bacteria within our digestive systems is actually responsible for producing over 90% of our serotonin. And serotonin is one of the key molecules that gives rise to our particular day-to-day -day state of consciousness. So our experiences of being beings is largely mediated by the activity of our digestive systems. Yeah. So, and which then kind of we pass that responsibility onto the trillions of organisms that are inhabiting our intestines. So, I think that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and then to kind of build on that, you have um, like our soils are m becoming massively depleted in soil microbiome. So, over the last like decade or two decades, the level of diversity of bacteria and fungi in our soils have been massively um, destroyed through the use of know fertilizers pesticides chemicals that kind of kill that teeming life in the soil um, and our microbiomes are directly connected to the microbiomes of the soil so if we're decreasing the diversity of bacteria and such in the soil then our food the food that we eat that used to have that uh, diversity of microbiota um, yeah, so we're, it's, it's like we're directly connected to that again. So it's like the right. destruction of our ecosystems is leading to the destruction of our personal ecologies and they're directly connected to our mental ecologies and whole kind of holistic um, health. So It's great to see how this kind of systemic thinking starts to kick things into place rather than just being kind of like bewilderingly sort of complex well. and abstract. Yeah. I think I read somewhere something like... Uh, uh, vegetables grown today have something like a fifth of the minerals nutrients, and nutrients yeah. than they would have done maybe yeah. 60, 70 years ago. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is just through till practice as well, like plowing the soil. Yeah. Uh, imagine if, if someone just came through and upended a random number of the buildings in our city and we were supposed yeah. to just continue functioning as well. I mean, that's what's happening, you know, these layers of the soil yeah. are being ripped up and overturned. Yeah, so tilling is when you kind of, when you, does that, do you know what tilling is in here? There's a couple of those. Yeah, it's a, um, when you kind of plow through the soil and you kind of turn it over um, and, and, you know, like mix it up, which obviously breaks those, those delicate mycelial connections and um, that complexity. You know, we're, get, we're kind of like running through the soil and destroying that. So there's strata, really strata, structure. bacteria as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But the word holobion. Sorry, just to go back yes, to that. Right. So James, this James Gilbert guy um, came up with this word holobion to take the place of the word species um, to refer to like he referred to a human like this is a holobion. That's the human and all of the um, contained like bacteria and other beings and life. So you're kind of a whole. Yeah, like a, a combination of many holes in a larger hole. Um, and then you could also, like, this is where I got to, um, I was teaching at a place called Schumacher College around this topic of symbiosis, and I got really deep into it um, and started kind of ex expanding that symbiosis from just the body and the bacteria to like, okay, well, what is like a Gaia-level symbiosis? Like, what is that holobion to which we all um, belong to? 
And then, you know, again, things like extinction rebellion, there's this feeling of like, no, we are a larger whole and we need to we need to start recognizing that. And then expanding that even beyond planet Earth, even perhaps. <laughs> and yeah, so this, uh, uh, Alan Watts has a great quote on this topic, it's one of his best known ones, I think. Every individual is a unique manifestation of the whole, as every branch is a particular outreaching of the tree. To manifest individuality, every branch must have a sensitive connection with the tree, just as our independently moving and differentiated fingers must have a sensitive connection with the whole body. The point, which can hardly be repeated too often, I keep doing it today, is that differentiation is not separation. The head and the feet are different, but not separate. And though man is not connected to the universe by exactly the same physical relation as branch to tree or feet to head, he is nonetheless connected and by physical relations of fascinating complexity. So the uh, isn't it? So and, and uh, so I guess the, 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 the word universe is, uh, is the word that we use for the that thing that which lives at the grandest scale. <laughs> that's like, uh, I read Buckminster Fuller using the term universe as a, as a verb. So he talks about humans in the universe as a, as a process rather than this fixed thing which maybe thinks it even more yeah. alive. Yeah. I, 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 my psychedelic experiences, one of the things my psychedelic experiences have gifted to me is a sense of there being aliveness in all things, a rather animistic way of, of seeing the world, which then has led me uh, down some, some interesting esoteric paths, actually, that you kind of have to have at least a degree, you know, accept the possibility of a kind of more animistic um, worldview to even begin down the path of things like chaos magic and so on, or it doesn't really make sense. Um, and uh, yeah, so what I was, that this conversation was also inspiring in me was. Hmm, Well, we, we, we touched on the climate and ecological crisis in the, in the sense of um, degradation of soil quality, and I'm really glad that that's come up in the conversation. It's the context <laughs> that we all uh, find ourselves in, unfortunately, at this point in time, and I think it's our collective responsibility to pay attention to that and to each uh, play our part. And by that, I don't necessarily mean, you know, like choosing the right coffee cup, but by seeking to change the systems which are systematically uh, destroying life on Earth. Um, and I referred earlier to a, a, a crisis of connection. And in a, in a, I think that's useful in some way, but uh, in, another, in another way not. And I actually, I'm not sure that um, more connection or even more intelligence is what is required for us to overcome or the climate and ecological crisis. Yeah. Um, I think we're, we are already very intelligent, or possibly too intelligent as a species. Yeah. Um, and I think our, our deficit lies more in wisdom. Um, so there's, there's a, there's, yeah. they're both, if, if, let's pick a word that describes, you know, that, that which is common between wisdom and, and intelligence, cleverness. You know, if inte intelligence is the kind of cleverness associated with the head, with, with figuring things out, with, with rational thoughts, like yeah, we're, we're really good at that. You know, but if wisdom is something more intuitive and more heart-centered and more 
felt in the body in the yeah the, the heart and the gut then i think it's that that is feels much more important to uh, develop to to come to terms with our intelligence in a way or at least the consequences of our intelligence um the the, the consequences of producing weapons of mass destruction and uh crispr gene technology and they for us to kind of edit our you know our own genetic code and autonomous drones, which now, now mean basically, you know, in principle, anyone can strap a bomb to these like 20 foot drones and uh, very soon have the software just go program it to go and kill anyone in the world. It's like we have the most uh, incredibly powerful and potentially destruct, you know, destructive technologies beyond the wildest dreams. And the, the challenge is that is for us to together figure out how we can, yeah, we can use those responsibly or let's say not use those. <laughs> Um, yes. And the uh, so that's, that's the um, intelligence and you know, wisdom part. And then the other thing which was coming to mind was uh, it, or another useful frame, perhaps, is, is maybe it's not a crisis of connection, but a crisis of seeing, a crisis of perspective. Because to talk about connection implies separateness. The, um, People, this is um, kind of you know, Taoist in, in feel perhaps that the idea of like um, unity of opposites or the, or co-arising of opposite phenomena. One thing takes its meaning from its from from the lack of it or from that which is in opposition to it. So um, yeah, to, to talk about connection or maybe a desire for greater connectedness. Um, implies the, the possibility of, of separation. And I think there is one important sense in which um, the, 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 way, the very way that conversation is framed is the problem. Because arguably both connection and separation are fiction, are an illusion. The, the, the fundamental truth is, is wholeness. And this this wholeness, this uh, which is pointed to in really all of the wisdom traditions that have lasted thousands of years of human thought, uh, is uh, is maybe the thing, the, the deeper thing that we need to remember, reintegrate, and understand that uh, any any kind of separation. And thus, in a sense, like any kind of connection, is is a um, is a story we, we we place upon that which is always always has been and always will be fundamentally whole. And I think and I think uh, and that's it's it's the possibility of separation that generates rivalry. I see. I would love this T-shirt. Just the T-shirt saying anti-rival. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's absolutely a place for, uh, for for separateness and for competition. As we spoke about, like yes, you know, in a, right. if you, if, like in a football league, but, sure. but not not as a basis to run an economy no. and yeah. a world system that is that you know that then results in us um, systematically consuming and eating away the you know the substrate on which we all, and all life depends. Yes, it almost feels upside down that we have this sort of top level competitive. Society, I often think it's interesting. We call it the human race, 
uh, that can be won or lost and is inherently right. Oh, no, I'm never going to unsee that. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just say, I had this um, little yes, image please. come to mind of uh, like the anti-rivals. Like instead of the police in the future, maybe we'll have like the anti-rivals and we just call them up and they come in and they're like, guys, come on, come on, come back together. Forcibly and... non-combatant. Yeah, just like, remember we're all one. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's your, yeah, probably some uh, psychedelic uh, <laughs> catalyst like that they use or something to dissolve boundaries. <laughs> Um, so this is, those are really interesting points, Stephen, about kind of yeah co competition and how um, I think you mentioned earlier, PB, about propaganda of uh, survival of the fittest, yeah. sort of like a false way of seeing nature and uh, like a cheetah and a gazelle, so they're in competition. Mm -hmm. Cheetahs aren't trying to exterminate gazelle, and actually, even though sort of an individual hunt may seem like a, a sort of a win-lose rivalrous game. Uh, the result, whichever way it goes, will sort of increase the fitness of, of both mm. species. Um, and perhaps to abstract that a bit, there are, uh, as Stephen was just saying, sort of in sport or in certain arenas, really healthy spaces for kind of competition, um, playing with our fitness and finding boundaries and to do with social cohesion as well. Um, also, like we said about sort of intelligence, and that perhaps that's not something that we need more of. We have incredibly powerful technology. And, and intelligence, and so, yeah, I, I wonder if you could speak to this kind of um, wisdom and how we might see that being enacted, um, yeah. rather than cleverly figuring out all the solutions, mm. holding space for that. Yeah, it was really moving hearing you speak, Stephen, really speaks to um, some of the things I've also been sitting with recently. Um, yeah, when you were talking about the gazelle and the cheetah, you know, this, this kind of sense came to me of like of course there's a you know that there is a win-lose dynamic there of course like if the, the cheetah catches the gazelle there is undeniably a win-lose event that will happen there but at the same time the, the cheetah needs the gazelle to to keep surviving like there's a there's a kind of undeniable entanglement of like if if you know like i need you to survive so that i can also eat you so it's just like it's so much more complex than like competition or like also these are these are again like Western words that we put on an infinite infinitely complex relationship. It's not just competition. It's not just collaboration. It's like it it is they're they're like in one together like the gazelle and the cheetah. Anyway, this could get very like esoteric. But I was um, recently in California and speaking with a um, a mentor of mine, she's a she's an indigenous, um, a native Lakota woman, and she was saying how um, in indigenous cultures there is this very deep sense of a natural law that you cannot break and you cannot um, defile that natural law. And she was saying, um, you know, like when people from our, our when our people would go out and go hunting, you know, like let's say there's one one time. Um, or well, like they put out like traps to kill animals and they come back to the traps and discover um, that like 10 animals have been killed on that day just by, you know, by luck or chance. And actually the practice that, that they have is to not, is to kind of only take as much as they need, even though it's all there. And if it was, you know, I'm just speaking from what I feel is our culture, but in our culture, it'd be like, oh, let's like pack it all away and store it up and put it in our 
technological freezers so that we can have lots and forever, yeah. And it's like this, it's so hard to kind of grasp that, that it was so embedded in that culture and way of being that, that it would be unimaginable um, to take more than you need because that's the natural law. And if you take more than you need, you're not going to get any in 10 years' time. There's not going to be any left. So there's like this really, it feels like very simple wisdom, but it's, it's like it's very <coughs> profound because we're not doing it. Which yes. is, it's way beyond where, where we're at. Um, so, so to build on that, do you, do you um, and, and anyone else to chip in, have any hope for, um, uh, for that only using what's needed and what's necessary into the future? Like, um, I can see how that works in quite in sort of localised, uh, older societies. Um, I'm not quite sure how that may look or how that's possible in a kind of a, a, a global a global society, I won't say global economy, but in, in a society where we, we do have range to travel globally and to interconnect, to connect with each other globally, how that might work. And we've been sold, we've been sold a dream of um, consumption that you can consume, that we can consume forever and if we consume enough then we'll feel good enough. And like, so one, one of my teachers, Joanna Macy, um, talks about this, the concept of gratitude being a subversive act in this time, which seems really like weird and silly, that like we've been sold this whole story that we're not enough and we're not good enough, and that and that drives this incessant consumption. So if we can even bring like simple practices like gratitude back into daily life, that can actually be a political act because it, it can actually cultivate a sense of enoughness and not needing to go and like keep consuming. And um, just yeah, in so. answer to your question, there is a part of me that just thinks like if we don't. If we don't evolve to, you know, in that way, we're going to come to the point where we don't have a choice. Like, there's just not going to be enough. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that we will start having to cut back because there's just, it's just, it, there's not going to be enough. Sure. I mean, I guess that's the it's thing happening. About yeah. Unsustainable systems are by definition. You know, yeah. But when you go to Sainsbury's, the they won't, yeah, there won't be bananas anymore. It's like, well, it's time to cut back on bananas, isn't it? <laughs> So, so how we sort of organise to, to, to bring that simple and profound law and way of being back, I, I do think there's some hope for that. Um, uh, talk, talk to the beach of you today about um, new ways of organising in, in sort of organisations, the idea of like a teal organisation or uh, coming from XR, the Citizens' Assembly, or more participatory democracy. And uh, also looking at sort of mycelium and how it's, it's not centrally planning, you know, oh, let's just manufacture a surplus of enzymes in case we need to break down certain hardwoods or whatever. It's just doing things in a locally responsive way. And so there's, there's some yeah. architecture for that connected intelligence. And so it'd be really great if we could kind of run, run through that and get some different takes on what, what, are, what are the systems and designs that um, each of you see emerging or have hope for um, to have a system that's not kind of one or the other uh, you know, unified or fragmented, but it's, it's in this interesting kind of place in between um, that can be responsive and can take just enough and can say, no, thank you, that was just, just right, actually. I don't need any more. What sort of uh, systems or movements do we, do we see enacting this kind of new way? Cool, that's a good question. So let's see. I think um, just to kind of bridge what you just mentioned and the previous topic that um, Phoebe was talking about, I think we are kind of living in a bit of a blip in civilization. So rather than like 
um, having this upward uh, ends progress type of narrative, we are kind of witnessing just like a pulse waveform throughout society. So we had this, we suddenly in the at dawn of the industrial revolution had this massive um, influx of fossil fuels as a source of energy, which we then started to draw down and they're not going to last forever. I mean, we are going to eventually hit the wall of ecological limits and it's going to hit us pretty hard until we start actually preparing for um, some kind of downscaling of our consumption. So we have to realize that pretty much everything that we do in society is predicated on fossil fuels, whether it's technology, clothing, food, shelter, anything that basically defines our lives is dependent upon these kinds of systems which aren't going to last forever. So I think that we are eventually going to be coaxed naturally into living more kind of thrifty lifestyles. And at the end of the day, um, natural selection rewards those organisms that lead thrifty lifestyles, those that conserve energy, those that actually um, that don't take more than, than they need, that only use what they need and so on. So I do think there's going to be a, a kind of passive approach in a way to this kind of um, ecocentric way of life. Yeah. yeah. As to actual, actual structures, perhaps Stephen or Bibi could chalk up some for us. Yeah. Yeah. Please give that bridge, of course. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Um, yes. So it's crazy for me that, um, yeah, it's crazy for me that basically the default way of organizing is this top down, um, a couple of people at the top who don't have context as to what's going on on the ground, giving kind of orders top down. And, and you know, it's now being shown that it's inefficient. Like also on a human level, we've got like massive levels of disengagement in organizations. This is part of what drives my like passion for working in this as well, is that I think there's a figure of like this 70% of people at work are disengaged. And in a time when actually what we need is like, is right action and full engagement as a human being alive in this very, like both very scary and um, uh, you know negative time, but also you could also frame it as like, wow, what a time to be alive. Like what a time to, to be fully aware as a human being and to have the, the gift of like reflexive consciousness to be able to learn, to be able to make decisions, to be able to kind of come alive and, and yeah be in that place of right action. Um, I know that's quite difficult to keep in, to have in mind sometimes in like darker moments, but again, um, Joanna Macy's got this beautiful image she talks about that she says she can see, she says she can see um, bodhisattvas, like beings lining up in the Buddha fields, like in line to be incarnated at this time, because there's just, it's such an exciting time that you know, that she, she sees it as people are kind of dying to be incarnated, to, to come into this moment on Earth. And that, that gives me strength in those um, darker moments. Back to the organizations. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a huge topic, it's hard to know where to start. Um, I came into this through this fascination of, okay, clearly the default way of organizing is hierarchy. What else is out there? How else can we organize? And then there's this kind of whole movement of non-hierarchical, decentralized networks. So uh, Frederick Leloux talking about reinventing organizations, holacracies, like quite a rigid um, example of that, but one that's used a lot. Um, and these are different kind of ways of organizing that take on the form of a circle or many like nested circles or networks instead of a top-down triangle. 
And so people often think when they're, when they're moving from like a hierarchical organization to a non-hierarchical one, they're like, great, we're just going to take away all the like hierarchies, we're going to take away all the rules, and we're going to work it all out and it's going to be fine. Actually, it takes far more work, far more consciousness and awareness and effort and learning to be able to exist in a, in a non-hierarchical responsive system. Because suddenly, instead of being able to kind of sit, sit in your place in the organization and just wait for the command to come, you actually decentralize leadership to everyone in the organization. So everybody starts to have a responsibility that if they need to be constantly sense-making and perceiving and, and learning and deciding what to do. Um, and also, you know, these practices such as learning practices, feedback practices, um, doing kind of collective sense-making, that all becomes far more important because suddenly there's a kind of bottom-up leadership that needs to be exercised, um, which allows the system to be responsive. So it's like if something happens here, then this area, like just with the just like with the mycelium, it can kind of um, adapt and rewire and start to respond to something that happens kind of locally. It's the same for humans. If you've got a massive organization, if it's all top down, if something happens, I'm just going like if something happens in this part of the organization, but the command of what to do is coming from up here. First, there's got to be a signal that something's happened. It's got to go all the way up to that top level. And then the top level's got to make a decision with very little information because they're not there. And then that command has got to go all the way down. And so it's just like actually quite inefficient. Whereas if you've got this shared responsibility and the ability to respond, then there can be like very local responsiveness where it needs to happen. And you see that working really well in Extinction Rebellion as well. Um, I actually think often it's very efficient. I think the problem is not so much efficiency. Like many global corporations are actually efficient, at least by most you know most common understandings of the word, current definitions of the word. What I think, like what you're pointing to, for me, is more is uh, it's fragile. Yeah, it's, but and, and, and I think yeah. it links into what we were talking about about complicated versus complex. Where these kind of hierarchical uh, corporations are, are built as you know uh, inspired by. A mechanical paradigm as, as yeah. complicated systems like you know efficient like a car engine is efficient but mm. and what i heard you pointed to is this possibility of, of system or organizations inspired by living systems that can panic limit and leading to this like emergent behavior and self-feeding competition mm. yeah. and complexity yeah i guess the only point where they are inefficient is the 70 percent of people who are disengaged <laughs> it's like oh, well, well, that's what yeah, I mean, they're just, they're just cogs, right? So right. it doesn't matter in the machine paradigm, but actually we move into this living, responsive, dynamic, interconnected paradigm and, and the experience of the, the, the parts um, in as much as they can be separated matters. And uh, so your experience of working in a sort of more advanced organisation rather than a steep hierarchy is profoundly different, isn't it? And uh, this desire for changing that experience of participation in greater projects. Mm -hmm. I just add one thing there as well. Um, something that's uh, I find quite interesting is um, I don't know about you, but I find hierarchies like something just feels really wrong about that. Like not really on a uh, like an egotistical level, but actually like really visceral. It just doesn't feel like a right structure to have, and that's because when you look at anthrop anthropological literature, we find that for most of our existence, or at least based on the evidence that we have from say. Uh, currently contemporary uh, pre-industrial uh, people, 
uh, who live kind of traditional lifestyles, we see that these people don't actually live these same kind of hierarchical structures that we have a lot of the time. They actually have enforced egalitarianism. So even though egalitarianism doesn't come naturally either, they, uh, many people throughout time and throughout the whole biosphere managed to find systems in which um, egalitarianism is so enforced that hierarchy has very uh, little foothold to actually like, slip in. So for example, if they found that someone in say a band or a, or a tribe or whatever um, started to get a little bit too cocky and like out of their place, try to control a bit too much, people would, um, <clears throat> so they'd find ways to like knock back their ego a little bit, uh, making jokes and things like that. It started to get oh, a bit more serious. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Um, maybe even abandon them from the tribe and, and so on. Um, and one interesting example is um, the way that people used to hunt. I, I believe it's the sand bushmen who did this. Um, basically, they had a, a quiver, quiver of arrows, and their quivers, each person's quiver, actually contains arrows that belong to other people. So whenever they 